Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Jill Wine Banks, and this week we'll be taking a look at the role of causation in the Chauvin trial. We'll also discuss the issues surrounding the Matt Gates scandal and highlight the importance of diversity in recent judicial nominations. And as usual, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But before we start, let's talk about what's happening with all of you and vaccinations. I've been fully vaccinated. I've had both of mine and am feeling a great relief and an ability to, I don't know, see friends who have been vaccinated Uh, and hopefully someday all of you in person. But what about you? Yeah, I'm super excited that I got an appointment. I mean, there's been a lot written about the District of Columbia and the trouble that they've had with their rollout. But yesterday I got the email saying that I could sign up for uh, my vaccine appointment, and I did. I will be getting it next Thursday. I am getting the Johnson & Johnson, which I'm really excited about because, A, I don't love needles, so I will take one over (laughs) two any day. Um, And, you know, I want to get it um, as soon as possible, reach that level of immunity, as you said, to be able to gather with my friends who have also been vaccinated um, and also the next day, my my fiance today just made his appointment too. So it is happy vaccination news in my household. I'm super excited. Excellent. And what about you, Joyce? It's a little bit easier to get the vaccine in Alabama. Anyone who's over the age, I think as of today of 16, who wants the vaccine can get vaccinated. That's not necessarily a good thing. It, it reflects to some extent, I think, resistance against the vaccine. But in our neighborhood, everybody's been going out and getting it. And my husband and I are fully vaccinated. And Friday night, we met another couple, our closest friends. We had dinner at a restaurant that's put tables outside, and they're really far apart. They're much further apart than six feet. And we sat outside, had a great meal. um, And I realized that I've lost my ability to behave properly in public. I'm going to have to remember (laughs) good table manners again. (laughs) What about, what about you, Barb? Barb? Wait, you can't wear your sweatpants to the to the fancy fine dining restaurant? I'm, I'm out of Absolutely. practice. Absolutely. I mean, I was yeah. like, you know, nice top and a pair of yoga pants. It's the only way I can yeah. dress anymore. That sounds very fancy, if you ask me. Oh, no. Well, I, uh, I've i had my first dose. Um, I got it last week at Michigan Stadium, um, the big house. Oh, and, you know, Yeah, which was kind of a fun place to get it. You know, I had some concerns about just at such a big location that it would be a big crowd and a long line. And quite to the contrary, um, it was like clockwork. I have great respect and admiration for a well-run operation. And this was, like, I never stopped walking. I walked in, I went to, you know, station one, station two, got my shot. And for the first time in my life, had a seat at the 50-yard line at Michigan Stadium. So that was, <laughs> wow. of course, I was getting a shot at the time. So, um, but it was great. And I got an appointment. I, I got the Pfizer vaccine. I go back three weeks from then, two weeks from today to get dose number two, and then I shall be invincible. So Well, point. here's to the sisters-in-law all getting together together in person at some point later this year. Oh, I would love that. Fabulous idea. Absolutely terrific. And um, yeah, my husband is also vaccinated. We had Moderna, um, and so we had to wait four weeks in between, and it was hard in Illinois. People here want the vaccine. So Uh, Unlike you, Joyce, we fought for it. Um, But 
let's move on. Joyce, do you want to start the conversation about the uh, ongoing trial of Derek Chauvin and the issue of causation? Sure. So I suspect that we've all been watching, and I mean not just the four of us, but everyone who's listening, the trial of ex-Minneapolis cop Derek Chauvin, who's on trial for the homicide of George Floyd this week. We know you guys are probably watching and probably have a lot of questions. It's a painful trial, it's difficult, but it's also incredibly important to watch it. So we'll probably talk with you about this trial, not just while it's in progress, but down the road as we see whether the criminal case and the $27 million settlement in the civil case are effective in driving much needed reform in policing. But today we wanna take on one of the core trial issues. All trials consist, or rather all crimes consist of a set of elements that the prosecution has to prove to a jury's satisfaction beyond a reasonable doubt. When it comes to homicide, one of the key elements is causation, proving that it was Chauvin who caused the death of George Floyd. That might seem really obvious to anyone who's seen the video and heard the testimony, but it turns out it may not be as easy as it seems. So Barb, why don't we start right there and talk about what causation means? Yes, causation is one of the things we talk about in first year criminal law. You know this, Joyce, you teach criminal law as well to law students. And you know, there's certain crimes that are criminal just by doing them uh, and doesn't require any result as part of the elements. Driving while drunk, for example, um, it's a conduct crime. Just the mere fact that you're driving, even if nothing bad happens, uh, is in itself a crime. Um, there are other crimes that require a bad result to constitute that offense. And homicide is one of them. One of the essential elements is that there be a death, that somebody dies as a result. And it is a requirement to show that the person who's charged with the crime was the cause of that homicide. It's not a crime if you shoot someone who's already dead, for example, right? You didn't commit homicide. Maybe you're guilty of some offense like mutilation of a corpse, but you're not guilty of homicide if the person is already dead. And so what we're seeing in the Chauvin case, I think based on the opening statement and some of the questions we've seen defense attorney Eric Nelson ask um, of, of some of the witnesses, um, it seems to me that it, it is one of the theories of the defense, if not the theory, that Derek Chauvin was not the cause of death of George Floyd. We've heard some evidence about uh, underlying health conditions. We've heard about drug addictions. We've heard about the uh, observations from the store clerk, Christopher Martin, that it appeared to him that um, Mr. Floyd was under the influence of some substance. And so it seems perhaps that the theory of the defense will be it wasn't Derek Chauvin who caused this death. It was the underlying health conditions triggered by the drugs that Mr. Floyd had ingested that caused his death. But one of the uh, the things that I think he's going to run up against is this idea of, of substantial factor. Uh, one need not be the sole cause of death as long as his conduct is a substantial factor in the death. And so it could be that George Floyd would not have died but for uh, his ingestion of drugs or his underlying health conditions. But as long as the jury finds that in addition to those things, Derek Chauvin was a substantial factor in his death, that could be sufficient for a conviction. 
Yeah, it seems to me, you know, that if you uh, are having a drug overdose and so you're driving to the hospital to get treatment and it's fairly likely that that treatment will be successful. But while you're on the way, another car just T-bones you going 120 miles an hour and kills you dead right there on the spot that it's not the drug overdose that's the cause of your death, right? It's the person who hits your car. Um, it'll be interesting to watch the defense try to make the argument, though I think you're right that that's where they're heading. And we heard testimony this morning from police officers about the use of the prone position, which is how Mr. Floyd was laid out on the street and how dangerous the prone position is. Kim, what's that about and why does it matter here? Yeah, so a lot of time was spent today and, and earlier this week on this issue about George Floyd being in the prone position, face down on the ground. And it gets to really two things, right? One is certainly this causation issue. It goes right to it, whether uh, being in that position was especially dangerous, uh, especially for an extended period of time and led to his death. And it also gets to the issue of um, use of force and the dangerousness uh, that George Floyd, the, the how dangerous George Floyd was perceived to have been to police officers. And we've seen in these cases so often it's an underpinning uh, about police use of force. Police have the ability to use force that is commensurate to the threat that they think the person they're confronting presents to them. So it's this idea that even in a prone position, face down on the ground, um, there seems to be this idea, particularly today and, and today, Friday's testimony, that George Floyd could have still been some sort of threat to Derek Chauvin. We heard um, some of the defense, uh, the defense attorney uh, really drilling down on this idea about his drug use, asking questions about whether somebody who is under the influence of drugs, even if they fall unconscious, could they regain consciousness and be um, particularly uh, threatening? Could they regain consciousness and then suddenly get aggressive toward a police officer, et cetera, et cetera? I found that a really troubling line of questioning myself because it is not only reinforcing for the jury this idea of dangerousness, which inherently comes with this racial component, right? We've seen this idea, this inherent um, inherent uh, bias that Black people, particularly Black men, somehow are more dangerous um, than other people, and that is used as a justification by police for excessive use of force. In this case, in trying to make this claim, um, Essentially, what defense attorney, defense defense counsel was trying to do was to put forward this idea that an unconscious man lying face down in the street could still pose enough of a danger that it required him to still be uh, restrained in this way with a knee in his neck. I think that that is, I, I really question that line of questioning just in terms of the jury having to buy that. And if it if it works, if if um, Officer Chauvin is ultimately acquitted, I think it sets a terrible precedent about this idea that somebody, even when you're unconscious, you can still be deemed dangerous enough um, to be placed in that position. Um, but it also goes to, as we were talking about causation, whether it is the fact that he, that uh, George Floyd 
on the ground in this prone position, um, whether his airway was was cut off uh, to the point that that was the cause of his death. And we heard a lot about a police training. And in that sense, the, the testimony really showed that um, officers are not trained to hold people down in a prone position for nine minutes. Generally speaking, when the prone position is used, it's meant to get the person in handcuffs, to put them down, uh, to restrain them, and to get handcuffs behind them, but that they shouldn't be kept in that position because it has been shown to be particularly dangerous um, to keep them in that position. And we saw not only, you know, we saw those long nine minutes, but even after um, George Floyd was in that position, he lost consciousness. And for several minutes after that, even when the uh, off-duty firefighter uh, offered assistance and said she wanted to at least make sure he had a pulse, even when EMT showed up um, to assist George Floyd, it wasn't until the very end that um, Derek Chauvin released his knee from George Floyd's neck. So I think regardless of either of the two things that that was trying to show, it was a particularly bad look for the defense. Um, but I certainly worry that in the case of a an acquittal, that both of those things will serve as bad precedent moving forward um, to just reinforce really bad, what we know to be really bad policing. Yeah, you know, I, I really agree with you about how inflammatory that line of cross-examination was. And at, at first, I was really surprised that the prosecutor wasn't objecting because the defense lawyer is cross-examining a police expert and he's spinning all of these crazy hypotheticals. You know, well, what if he slipped one hand out of the handcuff? You know, that's happened before, hasn't it, Sergeant Zimmerman? And, you know, he hammered the police officer with the handcuff. And not to make light of that, that's obviously a possibility, but not when you have someone like Mr. Floyd who's out cold like he was. And so the defense lawyer keeps going with these crazy hypotheticals. The prosecutor never objects. And I wonder, we can't see the jury as we're watching this trial. But I wonder if it's not because the prosecutor has taken the measure of this jury and has decided that they know what's going on here and that they're offended by it. I mm. hope that that's the case. I, I have found so much of this to be not just painful, but really offensive. We'll find out what the jury's thinking at some point. And the key evidence on causation, Jill, is likely going to come from medical examiners. So what should we expect to get when we get to that point? I think the medical testimony is going to be important, although I do agree with what you just said, that it's been offensive so far, and possibly it is because the jury really is being offended, and so the prosecution is not stopping it. Um, and I've been a defense lawyer as well as a prosecutor, and so I'm sympathetic to both sides having a right to present, but the defense can go too far and can cause great damage to the defendant. In terms of the medical testimony, we have to start with the medical examiner's conclusion, which will be presented about the cause of death was homicide. It wasn't natural causes, which, of course, a heart attack or a drug overdose would not be homicide. Um, and it's clear from evidence, I think, that asphyxia is now the theory of the prosecution. In the beginning, they were going to be eliciting a medical testimony about a heart attack, but they have switched to asphyxia, 
which clearly would be the result of cutting off the oxygen and blood flow by a knee on the neck. Um, there will be testimony from toxicologists about the levels of fentanyl and methamphetamines in George Floyd's blood. But there will also be testimony, again, going back to what Barbara talked about, that even with drugs in his blood system, unless that's the sole cause of death, it can still be the knee on the neck because that is a substantial cause. So there will be some testimony and cross-examination about the level. I think there will also be testimony that he, George Floyd, because of his unfortunate addiction and longtime use of drugs, had a higher tolerance. So even if there's testimony about the level in his blood, which might kill you or me, wouldn't kill George Floyd. There will be testimony from medical people about his surviving a drug overdose just months before he died from this episode, where he recovered from an overdose, which would again show that it isn't medically caused by the drugs in his system. Um, his, his, so his tolerance will be an issue. There will certainly be questions about the, the knee and whether it caused him to have either a heart attack or to die from lack of oxygen. There will also be, I, I can't remember now if we've mentioned it before, this excited delirium syndrome argument. And so there may be some medical testimony saying no medical experts actually recognize this as a legitimate syndrome. And besides, he was not exhibiting the symptoms that might lead to someone being afraid that he would awake from his unconscious condition and have superhuman strength and be more aggressive and threatening than he was before he was put in a prone position, handcuffed, meaning that his chest compression and expansion was restricted, which automatically restricts the blood flow. Um, so I think we'll see all of those things, toxicology, uh, evidence of asphyxia, um, and the level of tolerance that he had, and that the jurors also are seeing the tape, and they saw what they will see as his life being ebbed away by his not being able to breathe. Uh, by the way, the excited delirium is treatable by things like water, usually injected intravenously, but if they had just given him water as he was asking for, give me water, that would have helped if that was a problem, which there's, there is no physical evidence of. Well, it, at least they, he would have had to, Derek Chauvin would have had to take his knee off his neck long enough for him to get some water. <laughs> And I the mean, evidence was so clear today, right? You don't keep yes. someone in a prone position when they're handcuffed, which stretches their chest muscles back and makes it more difficult to breathe. Once he's down, they should have had him on his side or sitting up. I thought the prosecution did a great job today with the police testimony. But I will confess, I've tried a, a number of excessive force cases with pretty good evidence, and we've had some cases where we've had acquittals, despite really good evidence. So what are the possible outcomes at the end of this trial? The jury deliberates. One possibility is conviction. There are three charges, I suppose, that there could be conviction on some or all of them. What are the other possibilities? Obviously, acquittal on some or all. 
or a hung jury on some or all. And I think that the... Well, Jill, start by talking about what the difference is, because I think it's not always clear to people that there's a difference between a hung jury and an outright acquittal. Okay, so that goes back to the basic um, standard of proof and the burden. The prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt all of the elements of a crime and convince all 12 jurors. There are currently more than 12 because you have alternates, but as soon as it goes to the jury and they go into the jury room, those alternates will be excused and there will be 12 jurors deliberating. All 12 have to agree on either conviction or acquittal. It takes a full vote. Only one has to say, I don't know, I have some doubt, and I can't vote for conviction. 11 people can vote. It doesn't matter. The one results in a hung jury. That means that the defendant could be retried because it was a hung jury. It didn't go to a full verdict, and that's allowed. But before it goes to a retrial, a prosecutor would look at, well, was it one juror who had a doubt, or was it six jurors? And before they would decide to retry, they would be evaluating what is the likelihood that a different jury would reach a full decision one way or the other. The evidence has come in, I think, very likely, the evidence has come in very likely even better than prosecutors had hoped for in this case. It really has looked surprisingly good so far. But even if there is a conviction, there will be an appeal afterwards. Right, Barb? How how would that process work? Yeah, and it's interesting you use the phrase, the evidence has come in well. That is such a prosecutor's way of looking at a case, right? <laughs> I mean, I think about, um, you know, in my former office, if it were either I were trying the case or one of my colleagues, and you'd say, how's the trial going? And they would always say, uh, either the evidence is coming in really well or it's not. Um, and I, I think that's uh, such an important thing. I think that when you're watching a trial, you might expect the lawyers to be uh, incredibly eloquent or asking all kinds of tricky twist questions. And that's not really how it works in real life. It is really uh, the job of the prosecutor to kind of get out of the way of the evidence and let the witnesses shine and let the evidence speak for itself, uh, because that is what the jury is going to look like. And in fact, the judge will instruct the jury that what the lawyers say is not evidence. And so you want all the important words to come out of the mouths of the witnesses and not out of the mouths of the lawyers. But as you say, Joyce, um, there uh, will very likely be an appeal if uh, Derek Chauvin is convicted. That is a very common step. I mean, why not? If I were convicted of a crime, I would most certainly pursue all avenues of appeal. And you can appeal for things like mistakes and evidentiary rulings. You know, the judge is there to decide issues of law. Um, sometimes the jury instructions are wrong and there can be a mistake there. Uh, those are kinds of things. But there's also one that is typically filed in almost every case, and that's called sufficiency of the evidence. And that is even though this jury uh, may have found the defendant guilty, there was so little evidence on one particular element that no reasonable jury uh, could or should have found that way. And so, for instance, if there's one element that never got addressed by uh, the, the proofs during the trial, that might be a basis for sufficiency of the evidence. So I suspect that there will be an appeal one way or another. A good defense appellate lawyer will review the record, will find things like objections that should have been made or evidentiary rulings that uh, perhaps were 
arguably wrong or jury instructions that were wrong and sufficiency of the evidence. But I think one of the things that the jurors have uh, the luxury of here because of the way the case is charged is some choices between uh, second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. And so depending on how they feel about the facts, there are sort of lesser degrees of culpability here, depending on what the facts they ultimately find. And I think in that way, the prosecutors were strategic in making sure that uh, even if the jury is not quite so inclined to find certain levels of, of culpability or that there was an underlying assault, there's still some basis for finding uh, at least uh, manslaughter, if not murder. Yeah, on that issue, I mean, I, I looking at this, I think probably the most likely areas of appeal would be, especially with that uh, second degree charge, which is a felony murder charge, you have to have a finding that there was an assault. Uh, and I think a lot of this, when it, you get to training and, and what was reasonable and what the amount of force that was being used, I think that's getting to this at uh, that element that an assault took place. Um, that would be required to find that um, second degree murder charge. Um, and then with the third degree, it would be the the acting in a, in a way that showed reckless disregard uh, for George Floyd's life. I think that's probably going to be uh, an area that the um, we're seeing a lot of focus on and that could be the subject of appeal. But I want to ask this because I'm not uh, a criminal lawyer. I did, I did civil appellate work, but it seems to me watching that a lot of times when you see successful appeals in criminal cases, usually involves procedural things like a jury member not being forthcoming about what they knew about the trial, about what their biases were, right? So is that a possibility uh, more likely? I mean, I'm thinking about, um, for example, the, the, the appeal, um, of in the Boston Marathon bombing case of, of Sarnayev that's going to the Supreme Court. That's based on what the jurors knew about the case. Um, is it going to be something procedural like that that doesn't necessarily get to the elements of the crime? There are all kinds of procedural issues that can come into play along with substantive ones in an appeal. So something really important that you do in a case like this, and I suspect that Keith Ellison, the Minnesota attorney general, who's a very fine lawyer, has uh, someone uh, on their extended team who's doing this every day, watching the issues that come up during the day. And even if it's something that appears as as innocuous as a juror and a prosecutor coming into contact in a bathroom or something like that, they're immediately going on the record with the judge and cleaning that up and making sure that there's nothing that they haven't fully documented that clarifies these sorts of procedural problems. There can be things that come up that you're just not prepared for. For instance, issues like something that goes on in the jury room that prosecutors don't know about at the time. But by and large, the reason you want an appellate lawyer on your team during the trial is to make sure that there's nothing coming up that you're not prepared for and making sure that you fix it at trial, which is the right time to clarify both these procedural and substantive problems. So can I add something from two different perspectives? One is I've also been a defense lawyer. So uh, let me just point out that the defense really only has to poke holes in the case. They don't have a burden of proof. They just have to, I mean, in legal terms, create reasonable doubt, but people would say poke holes in the case. And that is something that we have to keep in mind in terms of what could happen. 
But Joyce, your point about having an appellate lawyer watching this, when I started as a prosecutor, the first assignment that all the lawyers in the organized crime section had was to handle appeals. And the idea was so that you would become very aware of the mistakes that can be made in trying a case so that you, when you start trying cases, don't make those. Um, and then there are issues, I think, Kim, you were referring to this, the merger question, when you're talking about the assault being the basis for the homicide, for the murder charge. And that is something that could be grounds for an appeal based on law, not based on how the evidence went in, which I would agree has, you know, as Barbara said, it went in really well. Uh, the sympathy factor, uh, the humanizing and uh, of the victim, who he was, and seeing the videos of him lively, active, dancing, cheerful, doing side lunges just before life was snuffed away from him. Um, so I just wanted to make the, the point about from the defense and from the appellate point of view. We want to tell you about Magic Spoon cereal. It's the best when you want great flavor and great taste, but still want to be healthy. Magic Spoon is as delicious and healthy as it gets, with zero grams of sugar, 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs, and just 140 calories a serving. It's perfect for everyone. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, GMO-free, and you can get it in a healthy and delicious four-flavor variety pack with cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter flavors. You know, Joyce, I usually don't reach for cereal when it comes to a meal or a snack, but in this case, I really love it because it has such high protein content. I usually go for high protein snacks. And in this case, Magic Spoon is perfect. And an extra tip is putting it over yogurt instead of just eating it with milk. Um, that makes it even more high protein, and it's really delicious. It sounds great. And um, if you're like our house, Kim, you know, our eating habits have dropped off a little bit during the pandemic. So having <laughs> something like this that we can use to make sure we're eating in a more healthy fashion is really great. Go to magicspoon.com slash sister to grab a variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code sister at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash sister. And use the code SISTER, S-I-S-T-E-R, to save $5. Check out the link in the show notes. Thank you to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Well, should we move on now and talk about Gatesgates, Kim? <laughs> I think so. So uh, according to the New York Times, the Department of Justice is investigating whether Congressman Matt Gates of Florida was involved with the recruitment of multiple women online for sex who received cash payments. And the Times is also reporting that uh, there's an investigation over whether Gates had sex with a 17-year-old girl and whether she received anything of material value uh, and whether that took place across state lines. Um, the Daily Beast today also published some text messages that they report 
are part of this probe. Um, Gates has denied all of these allegations, and he's also denied a report from CNN that he showed pictures of naked women to his colleagues on Capitol Hill, sometimes even on the House floor. Um, He also alleged in a television interview that the allegations are part of uh, an extortion scheme against him. So I want to break down the law of this, and uh, I want to turn to Barb first um, to, to sort of walk us through what the law involved is here. It looks like these allegations could involve everything from sex trafficking to identity theft. Um, how, how do we break down what the potential liability that Congressman Gates could be facing here? And what about this extortion claim that he says is a part of this? Yeah, I'm glad to talk about the law because the facts in this case are crazy. So <laughs> I, I imagine we will learn more in the coming days and weeks. But um, it, it sounds like there are a few possibilities of what's at issue here. There is a crime of sex trafficking. Um, And that makes it a crime to um, recruit people, to transport people, to uh, solicit people uh, uh, for commercial sex acts. Um, And if you use force or threats or violence, it can be a crime no matter the age of the victim. If the person is under 18, you don't even need force or threats or coercion. It is per se a crime. And those penalties can be very serious. There's a mandatory minimum sentence if the uh, the, the person is under 18, and there's a man of 10 years and a mandatory minimum of 15 years if the person is under 14. So in this instance, if we have someone alleged to be 17 years old, um, it could be uh, a crime of trafficking if there is you know, any of these verbs enticing recruiting uh, for a commercial sex act. And the commercial sex act can either be in exchange for money or anything of value. So things like plane tickets and hotel rooms and those kinds of things that Matt mm-hmm. Gates has admitted to um, can uh, count as uh, constituting a commercial sex act. Um, And then there's another crime for enticing someone to travel in interstate commerce for the purpose of engaging in a commercial sex act, uh, which is uh, a crime of up to 20 years. That doesn't require them to be underage. But again, if the person is under 18, it brings with it mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years. And Kim, you mentioned the um, text messages and why those can be so important is not only can they prove evidence of intent, evidence of knowledge of someone's age, but they can also provide the jurisdictional hook that's necessary necessary to make it a federal case. You Mm -hmm. have to show that it affected interstate commerce in some way. And the use of uh, wires uh, for text messaging is sufficient um, to do that. Uh, You also mentioned um, identity theft, perhaps. There are some allegations about um, taking identities of real people and using them to manufacture identity documents. That is also a federal crime up to 15 years. Um, So that could be a potential count if that's uh, occurring here. And then you mentioned extortion. So Matt Gates, perhaps taking a page out of the Donald Trump playbook, has kind of gone on the offensive, right? The best defense is a good offense. And so he's not the perpetrator here. He's the victim. And someone is trying to extort him uh, and threatening to disclose this uh, uh, investigation against him unless he pays them off. And so uh, if that were to be true, there is a crime of extortion, um, and it's a federal offense to uh, threaten to harm someone either physically or to harm their reputation by disclosing unflattering facts about them. Um, 
in demanding a thing of value in exchange for your silence. And so, you know, one of the most famous cases uh, of extortion along these lines came with the basketball coach, Rick Pitino, when he was at mm. Louisville. And, you know, in that instance, a woman had accused him of rape and demanded money or else she would disclose his conduct publicly. He paid her, I think, $3,000, uh, but over six years, she demanded up to $10 million. And so he went to the FBI, and she was ultimately prosecuted for extortion and convicted. So those are some of the possible crimes out there, but I think we need to just know more about the facts before we can see what might fit this conduct, if any. Yeah, I think you're right. I feel like there is a lot more uh, factually about this case that we still uh, don't know yet and will come out in the days and weeks ahead. Um, but Joyce, this investigation also involves uh, someone named Joel Greenberg, and he's a former tax collector in Seminole County, Florida, who was indicted more than a year ago on federal sex trafficking charges and other crimes. And he's a close ally of Congressman Gates. The first thing I wondered when I heard about this is, is this a potential case where investigators are looking perhaps to Gates or other people to help short up their case against Greenberg um, or, or maybe getting Gates to flip on him in order to move their case? You, you, you prosecuted sex uh, trafficking um, cases. T tell us what your take is on this. So like Barb said, it's a lot easier to talk about the, fa the uh, law in this case than it is about the facts because number one, the facts are insane. Uh, and number two, we seem to be getting new leaks on the facts every couple of hours. Part of that is because this case is apparently a DOJ investigation. So DOJ, uh, you know, agents are armed with guns, badges, and subpoenas. They can get a lot of information that we're not privy to when we're reading press stories. There may be a lot more evidence in the federal investigation, or this may be all that there is. We don't really know the answer to that yet, and we don't really know what the relationship is between um, you know, the prosecution of Greenberg and the prosecution of Gates. It is entirely possible Greenberg, the case has just been superseded, uh, it's getting ready to go to trial. It's possible that prosecutors have decided that they need Gates's testimony on one or more pieces of that case. But I think that that's unlikely because of how far along the Greenberg prosecution is. I think it's much more likely that they bumped into Matt Gates and mention of him while they were investigating Greenberg. Either they found texts or maybe some of these photos we've read mm -hmm. about. Perhaps a witness mentioned this. There is at least a common thread in the news reports that we've read so far which is that the 17-year-old girl that Greenberg has allegedly trafficked is also someone with whom Gates had sex. And there's also allegedly another Florida state elected official who had sex with this same woman. So here's the difficulty in assessing whether there's a cooperation potential here. There's a spectrum of charges. Barb does a great job of covering most of the federal ones. It's also possible that there could be state charges here. And often in my office, when we handled these cases, we worked in a task force situation with state and local prosecutors and agents. We developed the facts without making a predetermination about whether we had a federal or a state case on our hands. And once we knew what the facts were, we decided how those cases would be handled. I don't think it's clear 
you know, for one thing, whether or not Congressman Gates gets charged at all. And if he does, we don't know yet if it's federal or state. It's possible, though, that Greenberg could have information about Gates and he might decide to cooperate against the congressman in an effort to save his own soul. Lots of ifs in this case. It's going to be an interesting, um, if a sad one, to follow. Yeah, there are a lot of ifs in this. And and Jill, one thing that also struck me is that all of these allegations, including this allegation of him, uh, this report of him showing these inappropriate pictures uh, of women to his colleagues, they all speak to the way Congresswoman Gates allegedly treats women. And so what are the legal and political implications of that? I mean, I think, you know, I, I think just a few short years ago, something not even remotely this potentially scandalous would have caused a member of Congress to have already resigned. But he is denying it, standing firm and setting up interviews uh, on conservative news. So so what do you see as the legal and political implications of this with regards to his treatment of women? So that's a great question. But before I answer it, I just want to do an extension on something Barb said and something Joyce said. One is, yes, he is alleging, he, Gates, is alleging that he was extorted. But I want to point out that even if he was, that's a completely separate and unrelated case. It would not eliminate his liability for sex trafficking or for the state crime of statutory rape. If he had sex with a 17-year-old anywhere in this country, it is a violation of the state law wherever it happened. So being extorted doesn't eliminate his criminal conduct. Um, the other thing is talking about Greenberg and whether he'll flip on Gates or Gates will flip on him. Um, they are on video together doing what seems to be making false ID cards. And that in itself is, is a crime, but it shows how in investigating Greenberg, the authorities were able to come to Gates, and then there were these text messages. So I just wanted to add that. Um, but you're right that in any other environment, no one would survive these kind of allegations, and they would certainly be taken off committees. They would probably have to resign. We don't have to look very far back. And if he were a Democrat, he probably would have been forced out, because let's look at the history of Democrats being forced out because of even milder, I mean, Al Franken's allegations are much less horrible than this. They weren't allegations of sexual conduct. Um, and the crimes that are at risk here, both state and federal, um, and also child porn. If he did show naked women, that's one thing. If he showed naked minors, that is a crime in and of itself. And if he did it on the floor of the House or to any of his colleagues, it would behoove them to come forward right now. And they probably should have come forward and reported a crime because they are, in my opinion, law enforcement officials in, in that sense and have an obligation to not just ignore when a crime is committed. They should have come forward. Um, and it is astounding to me, and I think it should be to every single person listening to this podcast, to think about the fact that no one on the Republican side, well, maybe two people have said bad things about Gates, but most have remained completely silent. And yes, we don't know all the facts yet, 
But what would it take for someone to come forward and say, well, we don't know all the facts yet, but if these allegations are true, it is a despicable act and immediate action must be taken. Um, that's something that it would cost no one anything to say, and it should be said, and we should hold members of Congress accountable for not responding. And I, I, it's hard to believe that we're in an era where Donald Trump has created the environment that it's okay to just lie and, and deflect and say uh, it's someone else's fault. That's not how we deal with these things. And so it is this new, newly created era of denial and deflection. And that's and what's I, happening now. I, I, I agree with you, Jill. And, you know, as you say, um, possession of child pornography, if, if the girls are under 18, is itself a crime? Uh, manufacturing child pornography is punishable by a 15-year mandatory minimum. But even aside from all of the crimes uh, that are occurring here, and you know, whatever you want to say about the morality, just how about the misogyny? And I really think that uh, we need to hold our leaders more accountable for the, the way they objectify women. And the idea of bragging to fellow members of Congress about your sexual conquests, I think, brings a level of, you know, dare I say, toxic masculinity to the floor of Congress. And it's inappropriate. It is what causes sexism in our laws and in our culture. You know, in Michigan in the last week, we've been dealing with an issue where the uh, head of the Republican Party in Michigan referred to our Michigan governor, attorney general, and secretary of state as the, th the three witches who should be burned at the stake. And you know, this is not criticism of them for their policies. Certainly, there is reasonable uh, grounds to disagree with people about policy choices all the time in politics. But to single out their gender and focus on them and demonize them for their gender, I think, is so damaging to women. And in the same way, I think that the way Matt Gates is bragging about his sexual conquests and showing pictures of naked women on the floors of, of the floor of Congress. Um, is itself a way of demeaning women that is unacceptable by members of Congress. And it reminds me of Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying, when there are nine, there will be enough women on the Supreme Court. Maybe when there are 100 female senators, there will be enough. Because you're right, this does reflect the people who are making our laws are acting in this way and demeaning women and not protecting uh, women, you know, we've already had conversations on this podcast about hate crimes, which include gender-based, and uh, whether the the shooting in Georgia was based on gender or based on um, race, ethnicity. Um, it, we need to take action. We as voters can and should. All right, well, why don't we turn to um, the uh, final topic that we talked about, which is judicial nominations. Uh, we have seen President Joe Biden make his first judicial nominations. And uh, with the, the first 11, he made an announcement during President Trump's presidency, he filled 220 judicial vacancies. He had, uh, this is really, I think, considered one of the real successes of his presidency. He relied heavily on the Federalist Society, the Conservative Legal Association, to recommend names for him. Mitch McConnell in the Senate worked very hard to push his nominees through confirmation, and he filled 220 of those uh, judicial vacancies. There are 68 slots open now. 
and another 26 scheduled to become vacant later this year. And Joe Biden has filled the first 11. And what is notable about his uh, nominees is the great diversity of them. Uh, three African-American women for appellate courts, uh, a candidate who will become the first federal district judge who is Muslim, uh, the first Asian-American woman who uh, would serve on uh, the district court in D.C., first woman of color to serve as a federal judge in Maryland, one is a public defender. So um, a lot of uh, potential diversity. Um, and let me let me start with you, Kim. What does it say uh, about uh, our judiciary when we have uh, diversity on the bench, not only diversity of kind of demographics, but also diversity in background and experience? Yeah, it's hugely important. I mean, it's hugely important for any branch of government uh, to have people in that uh, branch who represent America, who are reflective of the diversity, as you said, not just racially, but in terms of background, in terms of geography, in terms of experiences. And after uh, a, a consistent period of time, and particularly the last administration, the last, uh, the, the one term of Donald Trump for a lot of reasons because of um, just vacancies that came up in an actuarial way, as well as the obstruction uh, of President Obama's judicial appointees, uh, Donald Trump was able to nominate more uh, members to the federal judiciary in one term than in mo than anyone else in modern history. And those nominees tended to be predominantly white and male. And so we have, aside from the whole issue of uh, the ideological bent of the federal judiciary, which is another subject, just in terms of diversity, it was just very little. So there's a lot of catching up to do. Uh, and it seems that Joe Biden is intent on doing that. I, I personally, I think that it is great, but also really sad that in 2021, we are getting so many firsts, you know, the first. Yeah, I know um, what you mean, right? Like yeah. the first African-American this or Asian-American right. like, Really? Still? I mean, it's just really frustrating. <laughs> the first Muslim judge. That's the one yeah. that really yeah. gets yeah. to yeah. me. First. It's just, it's just, it's, it's disheartening in a way. And I don't want to take away the momentousness um, of this occasion, but that that's where we are now. So this is a game of catch up. I think we're going to hear a lot potential, particularly um, as uh, opposition begins to be mounted against some of these nominees, um, this idea that they are just token nominations or that they are not fully qualified because of this. Don't be fooled by this. We are playing catch up. Um, that there have always been qualified people uh, of various backgrounds who who can um, fill these roles and should have been filling these roles for decades. And so it, it's a matter of playing catch up. But one thing that I think is important, Barb, that you bring up is that it's not just about racial or ethnic or religious diversity. It's diversity of experience. I mean, we think about our first, um, the first woman who was uh uh, appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. She was a former lawmaker in Arizona. So I think that it is great to have had somebody on the Supreme Court who understands the process of passing a law, who understands the give and take, the negotiation. We talk about uh, things like legislative intent when you're interpreting a statute. This was somebody who understood how legislation passed because she passed legislation. I think that's important. And we reached a point where all we had on the Supreme Court were people who went to um, elite law schools, 
were appointed to the federal judiciary and just worked their way up to the Supreme Court. It was a really um, homogenous kind of path to that court. And yet they're ruling on things that involve farmers, that affect farmers, that affect people in urban areas, that affect people um, who didn't just come from, we also had a very coastal court, you know, people who were just from the East or West Coast when they're ruling on cases that involve um, the middle of America. So I think the more diverse the federal judiciary is, the better, and that it should be front of mind uh, to Joe Biden and the people who are advising him, that the people who are nominated to these seats really reflect America so that they can rule in a way and have in mind how these rulings are going to affect all kinds of different people in America. Yeah. And I think it's so important to remember, as you say, we're, we're still catching up. Um, where where we are now and and where we've been and the hazards of having a court that is homogeneous. Jill, when you began practicing, and uh, you write about this in your book, The Watergate Girl, uh, you found yourself in courtrooms in front of male judges who uh, were accustomed to only male lawyers appearing before them. And how did that affect your experience as a litigator? Yeah, it was true. I was almost always the only woman in the courtroom except for the stenographer who recorded it. And the um, question I would be asked when I'd first walk in is, whose secretary are you? There was never an expectation that I was representing the United States of America. And the behaviors that I encountered were maybe humorous in retrospect, but I would walk into chambers and the judge would stand. As you all know, they don't stand for litigants, but because in those era, in that era, uh, proper gentlemanly behavior was to open doors for women and stand when they came into the room. Judges would do that. Um, but I also encountered a lot of sexist trial tactics where a lawyer would sniff at my neck, if you can believe this, and say, oh, nice perfume, just loud enough for the jury to hear as a device to demean Are me. Are you serious? To, I am. I almost said a bad word. Yes, I am serious. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh my, oh, my goodness. And then you have the decision of how do you respond to that? Because you, if you speak too aggressively, you are viewed as a bitch. If you don't respond, you're ignored and you're demeaned and the jury may lose faith in you. And one thing we all know is the jury has to trust you if they're going to believe the witnesses you put forward and the arguments that you espouse. So you have to learn to deal with that. Um, it, it is, you know, one of my proudest things is that if I am in a job and they hire other women, it means that I didn't screw up and that people think that women can do the job. But yes, it definitely changed how I behaved in a courtroom and the things that I had to do to make sure that I was trusted by the jury. And it was even things like the title Ms. became something that was a possibility to use while I was early in my career. And I opted not to adopt that, although it would have been my preference, because I worried that the jury would think I was an uppity feminist and would lose trust in me. So I used the title Mrs., which was appropriate. I was married. But it isn't, I never thought of myself as a chattel who belonged to a man. And so I would have used Ms. as my own identity. Or even Miss would have been fine. And um, Jill, how, 
How has that changed since we've seen uh, more women come on the bench and, and more women judges? Have you seen a change in the way um, judges treat women litigants? Yes. Um, I think nowadays, not only are the judges likely to be women, or there, there are some a, a good number of women who are judges, your opponent may also be a woman. It's possible to have three you know, two parties and the judge all be women in the courtroom, and FBI agents who testify or IRS agents can be women. And it does make a difference. But also just the fact that judges now have wives and daughters who are either lawyers or in other professions means they are more aware of discriminatory behavior and are more likely to behave and treat you as an equal. And I think that's an important thing that we all need to look at is we don't want special treatment. We want to be treated as a trial lawyer. I don't allow myself to be called a woman lawyer. I am a trial lawyer. I'm a litigator. I'm a yeah, defense there's a, lawyer. There's a great quote. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg repeated it. It was said by another woman litigant. It was something like, I ask no special favor for my gender, just that you take your boot off my neck or something along those lines. <laughs> sort of appropriate to our first conversation too. Right, right. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, I think that it is really interesting, Jill, when you were speaking um, about the, the, the fact that you are representing others. Uh, and, and I don't always think about it that way, but that certainly was in my mind when I practiced law um, in Boston as a litigator, usually when I was waiting in the hole um, when I went to argue a motion or something, there was a hallway where the lawyers would all hang out and I would look down the hall and I would just see this sea of white men and me. And it was, um, it, it was in my mind that, you know, perhaps this judge, I would probably be the only black woman attorney that they would see that day or that week or, or something else. And that um, I was going in there and, and representing not just myself, but that all the women that would come uh, before me, or when I was sworn into uh, the federal um, the federal bar to to argue uh, at the district court um, in Massachusetts, and the judge who who did the swearing in was a woman, and there were several women being sworn in that day, and she remarked about how unusual that was. Um, it, it was there were these reminders that we did represent something bigger, and again, that's another thing that gives me a mixed feeling. It's on the one hand. I was glad to, I'm glad to have been able to do that. Um, but on the other hand, that shouldn't be unusual. We shouldn't have to represent anybody because there should be, we're half the population. There should be enough of us um, that we don't, the few of us who reach those, you know, echelons of judicial practice should not have to be carrying that burden. You know, I'm reminded of the day that Attorney General Loretta Lynch was sworn in and just by happenstance, a large number of the U.S. attorneys happened to be in Washington, D.C. that day. Barb, I can't remember. Were you there or not? We all went out in the courtyard at DOJ and we took a picture with Loretta. And there's a picture of her surrounded by U.S. attorneys. And there must be 15 or 20 women in the group. And it's very diverse. Black women, Asian women, white women, Hispanic women. And I remember that picture and then looking at the pictures of how male and how white DOJ transitioned to become during the Trump White House. And I think about all the experience that's lost and the decision making that isn't as well rounded and well informed as it could be, because everyone is coming from such a similar background when, when you uh, 
go ahead and and just really desecrate that diversity that's taken so long to build up. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I don't want to express any hostility against white men. There's certainly a place for them at the table as well. But um, you know, in in what universe do you ignore half the population, half the talent, uh, or, or you know, other percentages of the talent just right off the top, and say I'm only going to recruit from this very narrow talent pool? Uh, it's really a, a foolish way to to staff your your your, your needs, Joyce. I, I want to turn to a different angle um, on this. Um, you know, President Trump, we've said, was very successful by some measures in filling judicial vacancies. He was able to get a lot of uh, judges on the bench. And it seems that Republicans have kind of figured out the importance of the courts in American life. And Democrats perhaps have been a little slower historically to fill some of these vacancies. Uh, But if our judiciary is, as we say, independent, then what's the value of filling these vacancies from the perspective of the Biden administration? It's a really good question. And I think your observation is correct that Republicans have always done a much better job of prioritizing judicial nominations as an issue that drives elections, right? You may not love your party's presidential nominee, but if you want a conservative Supreme Court, then you have to vote for that nominee. Uh, There was a lot of that that I think uh, perhaps drove uh, support for Donald Trump at various points in his career. But then, as you say, Barb, if we believe that there's an independent judiciary that sort of magically transcends the the political party of the president who appoints it after judges ascend to the bench, maybe it shouldn't matter at all. But it does. And here's why Joe Biden needs to focus on it. So much of what happens in our system of government, so many of our institutions depend on people having faith in them for them to work. And there's nowhere that that's more important than with the judiciary. You know, there's no military might, no guns and and men's in body armor going out to enforce decisions that are made by federal judges and state court judges. Decisions that are made by our judiciary are enforced Because as a country, we continue to believe in the rule of law. We continue to have faith and confidence that the judiciary is independent enough that when they resolve our most contentious issues, we should abide by their rules. So it's critical that that faith in the judiciary continue. Biden, I think, has made a tremendous start here. The diversity in his early appointments is very good, 11 nominees. His aides have said that he intends to have a follow-on group pretty quickly because as y'all know, there's a pipeline. It, It takes a while for these folks to get confirmed. They have to fill out extensive questionnaires. They have to have Senate hearings. Many senators will file questions afterwards. There will be staged votes. So it's not a fast process. And they're competing for space on the Senate Judiciary Committee's calendar with all of the nominees who have to be confirmed at DOJ. It's really a miracle anybody ever gets confirmed unless it's Mitch McConnell trying to confirm a Supreme Court justice in in under 10 days, right? Then that's when I guess the magic happens. Um, But let me say one last thing about Joe Biden's nominees and why they are so critical to the independence of the judiciary. Donald Trump's nominees by last summer, only three of his nominees to the federal bench had had expertise 
as public defenders. Nominees came mostly from prosecution and from private practice, from from law firms. Donald Trump was not unique in that regard. You could say that the numbers weren't weren't quite as pronounced, but in most other administrations, there is really a, a heavy skew towards former prosecutors. So Biden, four of the folks that he's nominated in this first batch of 11, have serious experience as public defenders. There are people who have done some other form of public service sort of work. It is so important that we have a federal bench that's populated by people with diverse professional experience. We need more civil rights lawyers. We need more lawyers who come from the defense bar because decision-making will be better. Judges who are surrounded by other colleagues who have diverse backgrounds are likely to learn more about their perspective and their background. And ultimately, it will fuel public confidence in the judiciary so we won't have to worry about whether our judges are Democrats or Republicans. They'll just be independent federal judges. That does seem like a perfect ending to this discussion. And maybe it's time to move on to our questions and answers. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week as we will answer as many as we can there. Let's go to our first question, and that's from Tom. Michael Sherwin gave an interview on 60 Minutes regarding the riots on January 6th without approval from the Justice Department. Will he face any punishment for violating 1-7.400 Part A. Pretty technical question, but I think there's an answer to that. Barb, do you want to answer that one? Or is that Joyce? I'll go ahead and take that one, Jill. Tom asks a really interesting technical question about how DOJ disciplines its own prosecutors when they violate the regulations. In this case, the section that he's referring to is a section that very narrowly limits how prosecutors are supposed to talk about existing investigations inside of DOJ. And with very limited exceptions involving civil rights cases, the policy is not to confirm or or deny the existence of an investigation, but simply to reference the process, that cases are referred to investigative agencies and that they're handled in a consistent fashion with the principles of federal prosecution. Obviously, Mr. Sherwin, who was at one point the acting U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia under the prior administration, went and gave an interview on 60 Minutes, and he did that without approval from DOJ. He talked about the investigations and prosecutions related to the insurrection in detail. He made some statements that could ultimately be damaging. And Tom's question is, what happens to him as a result of that? I think the answer is this. That situation will be referred to something called OPR, the Office of Professional Responsibility, and they'll make a decision about whether Mr. Sherwin violated those regs, it sure looks like he did, and whether he should be disciplined. Unfortunately, though, I don't think he'll face consequences. It looks like he's on the way out of the Justice Department. That interview that he gave to 60 Minutes looked a little bit like an audition for his next job. And typically, once you leave DOJ, these sorts of disciplinary proceedings terminate 
because you're no longer employed by DOJ. There are cases where they can continue, but often they don't. So I think it's likely that Mr. Sherwin will escape responsibility, except we all know what he did. Thank you, Joyce. And here's one, Barb, that mentions you specifically from at SD Rose. Listening to the latest pod at Barb McQuaid talking about Title IX and NCAA women's basketball and men's basketball tournament facility disparities, which we all saw, of course. In reporting this week, I read that NCAA isn't subject to Title IX. Can you please clarify? Yeah, um, so Title IX is uh, part of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. So if you are a girl who played sports after 1972, you had the benefit of this law that required higher education and educational organizations to provide equal opportunities uh, based on sex. And so as a uh, girl born in 1960, I had... <laughs> full advantage of this law, which was wonderful. I was able to play high school sports and other things. But um, as um, uh, S.D. Rose points out, the law does not apply to the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is an organization outside of higher education. But it's maybe a distinction without a difference because its member organizations are governed by this law that says that uh, uh, benefits and opportunities must be equal and there cannot be discrimination between the sexes on that basis. And so uh, you, you couldn't file a lawsuit against the NCAA, for example, for a violation of Title IX, but you could uh, sue the the college that you attend if you believe that they were providing uh, disparate treatment between men and women. Great answer. Thank you, Barb. And we have time for one more question. This one comes from Mary in San Francisco. Mark Elias and his group are seeking to file lawsuits to overturn the anti-democratic voter suppression laws recently enacted in Georgia. If these lawsuits are unsuccessful, do you think congressional Democrats, and especially President Biden, will finally see the necessity in expansion of the courts at all federal levels, including the Supreme Court? Um, yeah, so I will talk a little bit about that. I, I think as it is now, aside from these lawsuits, it should be at, for the reasons we already discussed about diversity, uh, that it's important to uh, install people on in the federal judiciary who reflect uh, America. I, I don't know what Mary means by expansion, by putting more, perhaps that means putting more people on the court, including the SCOTUS. I think uh, particularly with the SCOTUS, that's a, a bit of a fraught idea. But what I think is really the issue here is a, a case that is currently pending at the U.S. Supreme Court, which involves a challenge to voting laws in Arizona. And that's going to loom large over any of these lawsuits that are filed over these restrictive voting laws in Georgia and other states. So what essentially happened is in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a key provision in the Voting Rights Act. It was Section 5, which allowed the Department of Justice uh, to, for certain districts that had a history of voter suppression, it allowed uh, the DOJ to require them to submit any changes in voting laws to for pre-approval before they could be implemented. The Supreme Court threw that uh, case out, saying that the formula that was used to decide this was too old uh, and did not reflect whether or not 
racism still existed. Um, this is a Supreme Court, including the, the the chief justice, who has said things like the key way to rid uh, the the world of race discrimination is to just simply stop discriminating on race. It seems to he seems to really not have an understanding uh, at at about the way that racial discrimination continues and is perpetuated in society. But that's my personal opinion, and I'll put that aside. Um, so the only thing that is left is for people to bring. Uh, to bring lawsuits like the ones Mark Elias and his group are bringing uh, under Section 2 which of the Voting Rights Act, which is still in place, which prohibits discrimination uh, in voting laws on the basis of race. Now, we have seen laws, even after that Supreme Court case, Shelby County, um, that struck down law, laws, voting restrictive laws on the basis of race in places like North Carolina in a federal court decision that said that voter ID laws were enacted in North Carolina with, quote, um, surgical precision, unquote, directed at black voters to make it harder for black voters to vote. So it is not impossible to win these kinds of cases. But if the Supreme Court in the case that is uh, pending right now sets a new standard, sets a new test in order to win these cases, that is really onerous and makes it much harder, then it takes away yet another vehicle under the Voting Rights Act to really go after these cases. And if that takes place, um, depending on when these lawsuits are resolved, it can make it a lot harder, A, for Mark Elias to win these suits, or B, for him, for those cases to be upheld on appeal when they are appealed. So this really is in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. It, under, it underscores the importance um, of these courts. But of course, of course, Congress can act immediately um, to A, restore the part of the Voting Rights Act that was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court and also pass pending laws that uh, betress uh, voting rights um, that are pending that have already been passed in the House um, it would require the elimination of the filibuster, which we've talked a little bit about before. But I personally think that there is no other reason that is more important to eliminate the filibuster, which has been used repeatedly to stymie civil rights legislation, than to pass civil rights legislation that protects the right to vote. So I think the key um, is, A, in the Supreme Court's uh, hands and also in the ability of Congress to pass laws that uh, that protect voting rights. Um, that's where you'll see it, not necessarily in the expansion of courts. You know, Representative Clyburn from South Carolina had a great tweet this morning. He said, nobody should be able to filibuster away my civil rights. Mm. And that's really what this comes down to. Even now, Section 2 cases under the Voting Rights case, under the Voting Rights Act, are very difficult to prevail in. The Supreme yeah. Court will likely make it more difficult the yeah. only real answer is to pass the legislation in Congress, both the We the People Act and the John Lewis Restoration of the Voting Rights Act. As Kim says, that is the only path forward for dealing with these voter restrictive laws that are cropping up in Republican-controlled legislatures all across the country. And just one last coda on that. Um, states can also play a role here. And I will give uh, I will give applause to uh, Governor Northam in, in Virginia, who I've been very critical of in the past, in passing uh, essentially a state law that does what I, I'm asking Congress to do, which is create this preclearance system 
uh, for implementing voting laws uh, in in Virginia. They have to be passed. Uh, they have to be approved by the Virginia um, uh, Attorney General's Office before they're implemented, uh, and also um, really expanding access to voting laws. I lived in Virginia. I don't anymore. I did. I lived in Virginia for uh, 13 years, and the first time I voted in the 2008 election, I waited in line to vote for three hours because I lived in a largely Democratic district in Northern Virginia, and it was a Republican legislature that made it more difficult to have enough voting booths in each precinct in the Democratic uh, in the Democratic districts to vote. And then in the pandemic last year, right before I moved away, I voted, it took 10 seconds. I put a ballot in a drop box because voting was expanded. And that's the sort of thing that is being codified in Virginia. So governors, even in states in the former Confederacy, can act to betrust those laws. Yeah. And, you know, Kim, when you mentioned about what Justice, Chief Justice Roberts said in the Shelby County case, uh, I feel like uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now speaking to us from the grave. Mm-hmm. She wrote a dissenting opinion in that case about why it was necessary to continue with these pre-clearance rules because she was very concerned about what would happen without them. And her the words in her dissenting opinion were, you don't throw away your umbrella in a rainstorm just because you're not getting wet. That's right. I feel so guilty. You know, the Shelby County case came out of my my state, the district where I was the U.S. attorney. Shelby County is just south of Jefferson County where I live. So I'd, I'd like to think that maybe we'll get the first case in Alabama under the new restoration of the Voting Rights Act and start turning the country a different direction. It seems to me that no matter what your political party is, you should want to support everyone's right to vote. You never yeah. know when you're going to be in the minority. Demographics are shifting in this country. We want everyone who's eligible to be able to vote. It's just that simple. I'm totally with Kim on the fact that we need to look at the filibuster, whether it's eliminating it or amending it. And one of the neatest ideas I've heard was to make a vote of 60, uh, a vote of the senators who represent 60% of the American population be enough to end debate. So that would mean it wouldn't take 50 even if you had California, New York, Illinois in favor and, and several other states. You would represent Spoken right like now. someone from a populous state. Well, it is, yes. <laughs> but Michigan would be in there too. And let's, let's be honest, right now, 50 senators represent 70% of the American population and 50 represent 30%. And that 50 can end you know, can stop passage of civil rights legislation, of voting rights, and that's wrong. So we need to look at that. Jill, we need you to run for the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jill should run for the Senate. I'd like to watch her make Mitch McConnell's head explode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. Maybe I'll run for Alderman in Evanston instead. But um, yeah, Um, anyway, I think it may be time to... um, call this to a conclusion. And so let's say thank you to all of you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. And don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. And please support this week's sponsor, Magic Spoon, To keep up with us every week, 
follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments as well. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. I always feel the need to do jazz hands after this. (laughs)